Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, 2 Kings chapters 14 and 15. As we ended our last lesson last week in uh, 2 Kings 14, we find yet another Hebrew king looting the holy temple in Jerusalem for the sake of its valuable silver and gold articles. This time it was Joash, king of Israel, who not only took the temple's holy furnishings and ritual implements, but he also plundered the royal palace of King Amatzia, king of Judah, as well as demolishing a 200-yard-long section of Jerusalem's walls. This was in consequence of King Amatzia having foolishly challenged King Joash to a battle and losing. Amatzia had recently won a decisive victory over Edom, and it seems to have inflated his ego to the point that he thought he was undefeatable. This led him to wanting to take on King Joash in Israel, probably with the goal of reuniting the two kingdoms under his own monarchy, of course. And in truth, he did have a king-size bone to pick with the monarch of the northern kingdom, as Amatia had given 7,000 pounds of silver to Joash as payment to rent 100,000 of his crack troops in a war against Edom. But when Amatia heeded a prophet's warning that God would not be with Amatia and Judah if he added these godless men to his own already formidable forces consisting of 300,000 soldiers from Benjamin and Judah, well, he released those 100,000 troops before they ever went into battle. But Joash kept the payment of silver which infuriated Amatia. And further, the 100,000 disgruntled Israelite troops apparently received permission from their king to loot and pillage many of Judah's towns and villages because they had been denied an opportunity to acquire the hoped for spoils of war from Edom. Well, it's shocking to see just how divided the Hebrew people had become. Truly the formerly united kingdom of David and Solomon was now a divided kingdom, not of merely separate families, but of adversaries. And this hostile division came as a result of the loyalties demanded by Israel and Judah's earthly kings. One Hebrew king ruling over ten northern tribes, and another king ruling over two Hebrew tribes in the south. But beginning with Jeroboam, who ruled some 150 years prior to Amatzi and Joash, religion and politics had become enmeshed. Thus what began as a singular and unique Torah-based religion originated by Moses, operated by priests, shared by the twelve tribes, it was now hopelessly fractured mostly because the kings now controlled it. And that's how the kings wanted it. The northern kingdom had generally abandoned the Torah altogether. 
the southern kingdom had greatly watered it down with their doctrines and their, their traditions. And even though outward appearances made it seem as though they were maintaining obedience to God's, God's laws and commandments, their hearts and minds were elsewhere. At every turn, these scriptural passages we have been reading scream to us, warning, stop and think, examine yourselves. You know, at times I feel like a broken record. And I often wonder if the true prophets of the Bible must have felt like that as they brought God's warning to His people along with the Lord's plea for them to return to the Holy Scriptures for their guidance in worship and behavior before He had no choice but to take drastic action against them. But most of the time, the prophets were vilified. They were hated for their message. The political leadership threatened and imprisoned them. The local religious leadership wanted little to do with them and usually saw them as unwanted rivals. The common people often laughed at them, called them names, charged them with fomenting trouble and disturbing their otherwise self-satisfied lives. But as always, there was a remnant with open ears and minds that accepted God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit and responded to His call. They, of course, were the oddballs of Hebrew society who were considered the exception to the rule, out of step, and therefore out of the mainstream. How dare they question what the majority of Hebrew society valued and practiced as their religion of choice? To put a finer point on it, here is the only substantial difference between what was happening in this regard in the times of the kings versus what is happening now in Christianity in general. The word from the biblical prophets was a direct oracle from God in that ancient era. And the people and their leaders heard it directly from the mouths of the prophets. It was a more or less new word that the prophets were pronouncing. It was eventually, however, written down. It was archived for the benefit of future generations. Not only the divine oracles themselves, but the various responses of the people and of the leadership to those oracles, along with the various consequences or blessings imposed by Jehovah for those responses, all that's recorded for us. Thus, since the Bible was written and closed up all those centuries ago, today, what Bible teachers such as myself present to you is still God's divine oracle. It's just that it's not by means of direct revelation. And it's not a new word. It's an established word that we speak. A word that's timeless in its relevance, yet easily forgotten and set aside. Often disparaged as no longer useful, no longer applicable to us. What is the same, however, is the response of the people 
to the teaching of God's divine oracle and the admonitions and the warnings that they, they contain. Now as then some followers of God will hear it, they'll heed it, they'll repent, and they'll change. But the majority will shut their ears to it, deny it, cling to the ways and doctrines they've grown comfortable with. And now, as then, the mainstream religious leadership calls the pronouncing of God's established scriptural oracles a danger to the modern fellowship of believers. Stay away from that kind of teaching, they say. Stick to the good old doctrines and customs we've given to you. Ones that have come from intelligent and spirit-filled men and women who formed our denominations. Be careful, they warn us. Obedience to God's word is actually bondage to the old. Be free. Know that however you wish to perceive God, or however you want to worship Him, or however you want to interpret His words, or however you want to live your lives, that's all fine now. As long as you do it in the name of His Son, Jesus. You see, mankind... Gentile or Hebrew has always searched for ways to rationalize our rebellion against God by concocting new and pious sounding doctrines and commandments and attributing them to God. Satan in the Garden of Eden showed Adam and Eve just how easy it was to take the divine truth add a little bit of a beautiful sounding lie and make it into a much more preferable and freeing doctrine that appeals to our evil inclinations and our insatiable desires for personal liberty and pleasure. From where we are now in 2 Kings Israel is less than three generations away from God ending His patient and merciful attempts to bring them to their senses. Exile was only a little more than 50 years into their future and they never suspected it. So sure that they were right. They had it right. And God's goofy and troublesome prophets, well, they had it wrong. Let's reread a portion of 2 Kings 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, we're going to begin at verse 15. That is on page 417 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Other activities of Amatsia are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Now because of a conspiracy formed against him in Jerusalem, Amatsia fled to Lachish, but they followed him to Lachish and they killed him there. 
They brought his body back on horses. He was buried in Jerusalem with his ancestors in the city of David. Then all the people of Judah took Azariah at the age of 16 and made him king in place of his father, Amaziah. Azariah recovered a lot for Judah and he rebuilt it. After that, the king, Amaziah, slept with his ancestors. It was in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, that Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Shomron. <clears throat> he ruled for 41 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. He recovered the territory of Israel between the entrance of Hamat and the Sea of the Arabah, in keeping with the word of Adonai, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet from gat Hefer. For Adonai saw how bitterly Israel had suffered, with no one left, either slave or free, no one coming to Israel's aid. Adonai did not threaten to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them through Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Other activities of Yeruvam, all of his accomplishments, all of his power, how he conducted war, how he recovered Damasek, Damascus, and Hamath for Judah and Israel are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Jeroboam slept with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah took his place as king. Amaziah was held captive up in the northern kingdom, capital city of Shomron, Samaria, for some unknown amount of time. However, since we have notice of the death of his captor, King Joash of Israel, and then the announcement of Joash's son Jeroboam II as the new king of Israel, it's likely that shortly after Joash's death, Amatia was released, which was a rather typical gesture by a new king who wants to show mercy and to kind of reset his relationship with a neighbor that he's been warring with. And so Amatia was allowed to return home to resume his reign over Judah. Now most scholars think that he didn't live very long after looting the Holy Temple, destroying a large section of Jerusalem's defensive walls, and exiling King Amatia. So since verse 17 tells us that Amatia lived for another 15 years after the death of King Joash, it's probable that he lived most of that time back in Judah, actively ruling over his kingdom. But he seems to have learned nothing from his misadventure and his subsequent captivity. Verse 19 explains that they, meaning his royal court, conspired against King Amatia. So he fled to Lachish. But they, of course, knew where he went. They were able to follow him there, and they killed him. Now, we get no reason for this conspiracy here in 2 Kings 14. But thankfully, we get substantially more information in 2 Chronicles 25. Let's turn there now just to read only a few verses. Second Chronicles 25. Page 1207 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Second Chronicles 25. Eh, actually 1208 because it's on the a little bit further down the uh, 
down the chapter. We're going to read verses 14 through 16 and 27 and 28. Starting at verse 14. After Matziah, Matziah, returned from the slaughter of the people of Edom, he brought the gods of the people of Seir and set them up as his own gods, prostrating himself before them and offering incense to them. As a result, the anger of Adonai blazed up against Amatia, and he sent a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought out the gods of those people when they couldn't even rescue their own people from you? But as the prophet was speaking to him, he interrupted him. Were you made an advisor to the king? You had better stop before you get yourself killed. So the prophet stopped, but he added, I know that God is planning to destroy you for having done this for refusing to listen to my advice. Then 27 and 28. From the time that Amatziah turned away from following Adonai, they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. So he fled to Lachish, but they followed him to Lachish and killed him there. They brought his body back on horses, buried him with his ancestors in the city of Judah. So, what we learn is that the conspiracy against King Amazia, Amazia, it's probably what you have in your Bibles, was probably the result of a mixed bag of unhappiness and revulsion among Judah's leaders and the king's royal advisors that had built up over time. It had some to do with political considerations. It had some to do with a humiliating defeat in a completely unnecessary war with Israel that he had so arrogantly started. But it mostly had to do with his turning away from Jehovah. And no doubt the temple priesthood was quite vocal in its disapproval and the people of Judah would have been greatly swayed by the priests. We need to grasp this was not merely a failure to properly or faithfully follow God's Torah. Amatia openly, unapologetically began practicing the worship of other gods, specifically the gods of Edom. And the passages make it clear that it wasn't only that he included the gods of Edom along with the worship of Jehovah, something that probably wouldn't have bothered his royal court all that much. Rather, he abandoned Jehovah and he turned himself completely over to the gods of Edom. Understand something about this, because I think it will be very helpful for you to know. In the ancient world, your gods, your culture, and your national loyalties were inseparable. One was indicative of the other. Thus, it was one thing to be tolerant politically and religiously by incorporating a number of gods in your worship, the Oriental mind easily accepted that. But it was quite another to dedicate yourself to one particular god or, or cohesive national pantheon of gods. That choice that you made dictated your national loyalties. After the war with Edom, Amatia adopted the national pantheon of the Edomite gods. For what reason? It's very difficult to fathom. And he also rejected the Hebrew god 
Yehovah. Thus he no doubt saw himself now as more Edomite in culture than being a Hebrew. And no doubt so did his royal court view him that way. To his Judahite citizens and his allies and his family and his inner circle, he had committed high treason. He had essentially become an Edomite. So in verse 19 of 2 Kings 14, we see Amatzia learn of this conspiracy and react by fleeing to the walled city of Lachish in Judah, and so he was assassinated there. There is no way that those pursuing him could have killed him, and thus those inside of Lachish who were in sympathy with the conspirators had let him in because the walls were quite formidable. It would have taken a siege to get inside those walls. Lachish is located about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, about 20 miles southeast of Ashdod. Well, we read that his corpse was taken by horseback to Jerusalem and buried in the city of David and the royal burial ground. This doesn't mean that his body was thrown over the back of a horse cowboy style. It means that he was not carried on a bier upon the shoulders of his royal guard as would have been customary. Instead he was put either into a chariot or maybe a horse-drawn cart of some sort. However, he was not buried in the catacombs, the rocky tomb of Judah's revered kings, even though he was a legitimate descendant of King David. Now, while there's no way for certain to know for certain, I can imagine that there was a lot of debate on what to do with his dead body, and that burying him in the ground in the royal graveyard was probably above what most people would have agreed with. Verse 21 makes a quick turn on us now. And it explains that the people of Judah wanted Amatzia's son, Azariah, to succeed him. He was a lad of only 16 years old. And while our chapter discusses him only briefly, much more is said about him in 2 Chronicles 26. And for some reason, 2 Chronicles refers to him as Uziel, or Uzziah is typically how it is in our Bibles. It means, Yehovah is my strength. Azariah, his alternate name, is similar, but it means God has helped. Now, we are told that this new king of Judah is lauded, especially for returning the city of Elat, today called Elat, which is an Israeli port city on the Gulf of Aqaba. He returned it to Judah, and he was lauded for building it up. Now, while there's, no, while there's not a lot of consensus on exactly what this is trying to communicate to us, at least it seems to mean that after Azariah's father Amatzia had conquered Edom in the Edomite city of Elath, that it was either largely destroyed or it had become once again along the way under the control of an Edomite prince. Either way, Azariah recaptured it, he repaired it, he strengthened its defenses. It was an important port city back then, just like modern Elot is today. So it was definitely worth fighting for. 
Well, next time, the next thing we learn, rather, is that a fellow named Jeroboam II succeeded his father Joash, king of Israel. And by synchronizing the reigns of the kings of Judah with the kings of Israel, we learn that Jeroboam II became king of Israel when Amaziah was in the 15th year of his reign over Judah. And Jeroboam II was just like his much earlier ancestor, Jeroboam I, who was the first king of the newly formed northern kingdom immediately following the civil war and the split of David's and Solomon's kingdoms, a kingdom rather, into two kingdoms. It was the first Jeroboam who instituted golden calf worship in the northern kingdom of Israel, claiming that the calf was a graven image of the God of Israel, Jehovah. And apparently Jeroboam II just continued in the well-established calf cult. Now the good news about Jeroboam II is he was apparently a fierce warrior king. He reclaimed the land that the Syrians, Aram, had taken over several over the time of several invasions of Israel. However, there must be something missing in the historical timeline between the reign of his father Joash and Jeroboam II because Joash is also said to have reacquired most of that lost land from Aram. However, these statements about territory and land being lost or taken back are imprecise by nature. And so while a city might be lost, maybe the outlying villages might not be. And kind of vice versa. A likely Jeroboam II merely added to Israel's holdings in the same general area that Joash conquered some areas, but not all. Now the entrance to Hamath is speaking of land to the north. And the Sea of Arabah is just another name for the Dead Sea. And of course, at that at one time was part of Judah's kingdom. So his military victories over foreign powers in this large swath of territory turned out to be, well, kind of a benefit for um, Judah, even though these wars were really intended to bolster his own kingdom of Israel. This gesture led to a much more peaceful situation for a time now between Judah and Israel. Well, in the Reuben edition of the Art Scroll Commentary on the Prophets. There is an interesting gloss that seeks to explain why it is that God would choose to make Jeroboam II to make his reign one of, the great, one of great conquests, one of great wealth accumulation, even though he was such a wicked king from God's perspective. And you know, his people weren't much better. I'd like to merely quote this from that book. It says this, Scripture explains why God conferred such, such success and prosperity on Jeroboam and his kingdom, even though they were continuing in a spiritual decline that led to these foreign conquests. God has mercy, even on sinners. One of the 13 attributes of mercy is slow to anger, 
which means that God withholds retribution to give sinners an opportunity to repent. And He may even bestow generosity upon sinners to ease their suffering. This is what happened under Jeroboam. Perhaps such mercy could influence the people to repent. Israel's suffering had not prodded it to repent, so perhaps gratitude to God would do so. Tragically, it did not. And before long, not only Jehu's dynasty, but also the kingdom of the ten tribes would be destroyed. Besides being right on this assessment, it sounds as though the statement was written by a Christian, doesn't it? But it wasn't. It was written by an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And at this point, I just want to make it clear that due to our very many mistaken beliefs that are taken as unassailable fact among Gentile Christians about the nature of Judaism and about the nature of of the God of the Old Testament. Judaism sees the God of the Old Testament as bestowing grace and mercy at every opportunity upon His people and reserving judgment for only the most severe cases are upon the most intransigent of sinners. Most modern Christians think that grace and mercy only began when Christ was born. And it's reserved primarily for Gentiles. While the curses of the law are left to be heaped upon misbehaving or unfaithful Jews. Now not only is this doctrinal mindset completely unbiblical, but it also slanders the Jewish viewpoint entirely. By now if you've been studying with Torah class very long, you know that the Hebrew Bible is full of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And the same unmerited mercy that Christians receive in our trust in Messiah is what the citizens of the northern kingdom were receiving from Jehovah when Jeroboam II was their king. Well, this chapter ends with the death of Jeroboam II and the rise of his son Zechariah Zechariah, to the throne of Israel. Let's move on to chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15. We're going to read the whole chapter right now and just be in it for a couple of minutes before we close. Page 418 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. It was in the 27th year of Jeroboam king of Israel that Azariah the son of Amatzi king of Judah began his reign. He was 16 years old when he began to rule. He ruled for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Yochlau from Jerusalem. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his father Amatzi had done. However, the high places weren't taken away. The people still sacrificed and offered on the high places. Adonai struck the king so that he had Sarat until his dying day, so that he lived in a separate house while Yotam, 
The king's son ran the king's household and was regent over the people of the land. Other activities of Azariah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. So Azariah slept with his ancestors, the kings of Israel, and they buried him with his ancestors in the city of David. Then Yotam, his son, took his place as king. It was in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, began his reign over Israel in Shomron. He ruled for six months. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, just as his ancestors had done. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. Shalom, the son of Yavesh, formed a conspiracy against him. He struck him in the presence of the people and killed him. Then he took his place as king. Other activities of Zechariah are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. The word of Adonai which he had spoken to Yehu was, Your descendants down to the fourth generation will sit on the throne of Israel. That is exactly what happened. Shalom, the son of Yavesh, began his reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, the king of Judah. He ruled in Samaria for only a month. Menachem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah. He came to Samaria and he struck Shalom, the son of Yavesh, and Shomron and killed him there. Then he took his place as king. Other activities of Shalom and the conspiracy formed are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. From Tirzah, Menachem attacked Tisach and all the people in it and its territory because they had not opened their gates to him. So he sacked the city and he ripped apart all of its pregnant women. It was in the 39th year of Azariah, the king of Judah, that Menachem, the son of Gadi, began his reign over Israel, and he ruled for 10 years in Samaria. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, and throughout his life he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. Pul, the king of Asher, invaded the land. Menachem gave Pul 33 tons of silver so that he would confirm Menachem's hold on the kingdom. He did this by taxing the wealthy men in Israel. And from each one he required one and a quarter pounds of silver to give to the king of Asher. Then the king of Asher turned around and left the land. Other activities of Menachem and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. Menachem slept with his ancestors and Pekachiah, his son, took his place as king. It was in the 15th year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Bekachiah, the son of Menachem, began his reign over Israel in Shomron, and he ruled for two years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel sin. Pecha, the son of Remlael, one of his commanders, conspired against him. With Argov, Aryeh, and 50 men from Gilead, he assassinated him in the palace stronghold of Samaria. And after killing him, he took his place as king. Other activities of Pekhiah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, that Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria. His reign lasted 20 years. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, who made Israel a sin. During the time of Pecha, king of Israel, Tiglat-Pileser, king of Asher, came and conquered Ion, Avel-Bet-Macha, Yanoch, 
Kadesh, Hatsor, Gilead, and Galil, all the land of Naphtali, and took them captive to Asher. Hoshea, the son of Elah, conspired against Pechah, the son of Ramalia, and struck him, killed him, took his place as king in the twentieth year of Yotam, the son of Uziah. Other activities of Pekah and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Israel. It was in the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, that Yotam, the son of Uziah, king of Judah, began his reign. He was 25 years old when he began his reign. He ruled for 16 years in Yerushalayim. His mother's name was Yerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He did what was right from Adonai's perspective, following the example of everything his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and offered on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of Adonai. Other activities of Yatam and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. And it was during this period that Adonai began sending against Judah Retzin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia. Yotam slept with his ancestors. He was buried with his ancestors in the city of David, his ancestor. And then Ahaz, his son, took his place as king. Well, the very first verse of 2 Kings 15 gives us a means to date all the various kings of Judah and Israel by synchronizing their reigns. And here we learn that Jeroboam II had been on Israel's throne for 27 years when Azariah became the new king of Judah. And as we move into this chapter and we hear much about Azariah called Uzziah in the in Second Chronicles, the king of Judah, I want to take a few moments to expand on that wonderful gloss from the art, art scroll commentary that I quoted to you just a few minutes ago. We don't have to look very far under the surface at what is going on with Israel and Judah to realize that from a spiritual standpoint and as regards the plan of God's redemptive process for mankind that will be brought about through the Hebrews, that a whole new era has dawned at this point in the book of Kings. Our focus up to now has been drawn to this terrible, faithless slide of both kingdoms, the disappearance of morality. And what we know, because we can read ahead, is to be the coming divine judgment of exile of Israel to Assyria and then exile of Judah to Babylon. But what we have found since Genesis and is especially highlighted in these chapters we've been reading for the past many weeks is a great God principle that we ought to fall on our faces in gratitude over. And it is that God's wrath and His judgments are always accompanied by unmerited mercies. Always. Never is it only wrath, but rather a combination of wrath plus mercy. And despite the great destruction wrought by the Lord upon the kings and their kingdoms and the people of Israel that would seem to mark an enormous failure and an end of this grand cosmic experiment in hopes 
of establishing a pure kingdom of heaven on earth. In fact, every one of these tragic events moved the ball forward towards the ultimate goal of universal redemption and peace with God. Even in this disgusting condition that is Israel and Judah at this time, a condition that they would continually, vehemently, irrationally deny at every turn, the preparation for their soon coming exile is, ironically, going to become life for a world that didn't know it was dead. The Apostle Paul picked up on this theme in his famous epistle to the Romans in chapter 11. In chapter 11 of Romans, verses 7 through 12, it says this. Just hear this. What follows is that Israel has not attained the goal for which she is striving. The ones chosen have obtained it, but the rest have been made stone-like. Just as the Tanakh says, God has given them a spirit of dullness. Eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, right down to the present day. And David says, let their dining table become for them a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a punishment. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see, with their backs continually bent. In that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? Heaven forbid. Quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel being temporarily placed in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel bring in in its fullness? Here at this point of about 2 Kings 14.15, the purpose and the plan of prophecy makes a dramatic transformation. And therefore the message and the focus of God's oracle through His prophets now transforms. Up until now, the prophetic message has been one of teaching, admonishing, warning His people about their current condition. Now suddenly, there is a decided shift of focus from all the present circumstances to a glorious future. A hope for a Messiah. A hope for a Messianic Kingdom emerges. That is certainly not to say that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and others of this new breed of prophets didn't also teach and admonish and warn the people to whom the message was brought. But instead of only despairing about this present hopeless situation and explaining the wickedness of the people's hearts and actions that had brought brought them to this point, 
the vision of a new and happier future is also presented. And in some strange way, the seeming failures of God's chosen people are going to be used by the Lord to achieve this coming kingdom of light and truth, life and joy. And all the stranger yet is that a long ago forgotten part of the Abrahamic covenant would come about in this process. Up to now, the Hebrews' entire focus on God's promise to Abram had been the land inheritance that they were given, Canaan. But now another element of the promise begins to emerge, the sprouting of the seed. Genesis 12.1 Now Adonai said to Avram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, away from your father's house. Go to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you are to be a blessing. I will bless, the, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who curses you. And by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Apostle Paul verifies the meaning of this when he says to us in Galatians 3.29, Also, if you belong to the Messiah, you are seed of Abraham. You are heirs according to the promise. So as we proceed now through these last few chapters of 2 Kings, and the times get darker and darker, the reality is that God is only preparing the world for new light. This was just as it was at creation when first darkness had to be established and only afterwards was there light. Why? Because that's His divine pattern.